and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us for another tremendous episode today. I'm really excited to share today's guest with you. But before we get to today's guest, I just want to let you know how you can help us out here at the podcast. So number one, if you enjoy this conversation, please share it, share it on social media, send it to a friend via text or email, share these conversations. Every time you share this conversation with someone else, it helps us continue to grow this thing and build it out. So thanks to everyone who continues to share these conversations, and hopefully you will feel inspired to share today's talk as well. Also, go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can subscribe to the show by giving as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us as we continue to build this out. We do not have any advertising, so that's the way that we generate revenue. So if you feel inspired to do so, we would encourage you and would be forever grateful if you did that. Now to today's guest. So today's guest is David Vabora, and I really honestly don't even know where to start when it comes to David's bio, but I'm going to do the best I can to give an introduction to who he is, what he's done, and what he's all about. So since 2014, he has painstakingly built a business and a dream around training elite and adaptive athletes. Many of them are wounded warriors under one roof. So he has a gym, and his adaptive training foundation provides free nine-week boot camps to people with amputations, spinal cord injuries, and other disabilities. And he'll say in this conversation, a lot of those people are veterans, but not all of them are. And certainly he has a respect for veterans, but his foundation is really about serving those who are adaptive athletes. He's appeared on the Ellen DeGeneres show. He's been to the White House where he shook hands with President Obama. He has had President Bush accompany him. Uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan visited the foundation's old space in North Dallas, and they presented him with a set of cufflinks embossed with the presidential seal. Also, when David was 10 years old, 
a teenage neighbor sexually abused him. And we jump right into this in part because David and I had had a previous conversation and I knew that he felt comfortable talking about this traumatic experience. So he's going to talk about how that shaped his life, how it shaped his career. He had wound up playing professional football for four and a half years and how it shapes his day to day today. David has had concussions. He had a shoulder injury that ended his career. He's been through a lot, including uh, getting addicted to opioids and eventually having a, a suicide attempt, which he shares in this conversation as well. So David's going to share his journey. He's going to share his mindset. He's also going to share what he's learned about emotion and his own emotion and how to build emotional strength and how to be intentional with building emotional strength. David is an incredibly intentional human being and he's somebody still extremely curious about how he can get better and how he also can live in the present moment so this is a deep conversation it's an intelligent conversation it also has elements of darkness so it's definitely a mature conversation but i know you're gonna love it honestly my job was pretty easy it was to listen to ask questions and you're gonna find david extremely articulate somebody who has done a lot of deep and personal work to get to where he is today so without further ado, I present to you, David Vibora. David, super excited to have you on the podcast. We tried to have you on once and <laughs> Wi-Fi didn't quite work out for either of us. And um, honestly, I'm excited to do this a second time because I, the second time around, I feel comfortable enough to dive into some pieces to your story that maybe I, I danced around the first time we chatted. And yeah. um, I'm really interested to learn more. So I feel like I get the benefit of having to do this again in mm -hmm. a in the sense of maybe we can be more efficient and maybe we can make it a little tighter, which is not right. necessarily the nature of long form podcasts. Right. Um, so where I'd love to start is to really get into the weeds with you on your childhood. And mm -hmm. I know your childhood had some ups, it had some downs, um, and everything in between. So if you could fill in the gaps as far as the, the high level bullet point chapters of your childhood, uh, I think our listeners would greatly benefit from hearing that. Yeah, thanks, Brian. And stoked to be on and fingers crossed on no technical glitches today, man. Uh, my childhood was middle America, grew up in Eugene, Oregon. My pops played linebacker for the Oregon Ducks. I think I came out of the womb just as a football player. I mean, I sat on his lap from as young as I could remember and asked him questions about the game, wanted to learn the ins and outs because that's what I glorified in my life. And so I, I used sports for sure as my outlet. Um, but good family, you know, went to church every Sunday, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, a lot of means to go and live exorbitant things and go on vacations and whatnot, but a good loving family I had an older sister, two years older than me. Um, and actually when I was 10 years old, uh, I was sexually abused and it's something that has taken me think, two decades to even be willing to bring up. And then another last three or four years to do some deep work, to be able to see the perspective that is that, that all of that occurred for me. And it's not a, in spite of those things, but because of those things that I have a unique perspective um, and a voice to be positioned to encourage other people that have endured something similar. Uh, but really that, that, that abuse was a scar that I just locked down and put away. Um, I used sports as the golden boy, right? Perfect grades, perfect in sports, talented. I used all of that to be on the outer shell because that was the best way to keep people from asking what was really going on. 
crazy underlying anxiety, depression. Make, I could make myself physically ill, like vomiting, just from harboring that emotional side, learning to callous myself to not allow those emotions to surface. But going through um, you know, middle school, high school, standout athlete, I was always good, but kind of that question of, well, is he good enough to play at that next level? And, you know, I was a quarterback in high school. And when it came down to signing day out of, out of high school to go to college, I had one division one offer, University of Idaho. I took that because I wanted to play at the highest level. And, you know, in school, I had success as a freshman. I started, I was like 190 pounds soaking wet. And one of the things that like proved to me that my mental capacity could allow my, I'd say, moderate talents to overachieve really came in college because they said, Hey, you're no longer a quarterback. You're not a linebacker. It was like, Whoa, like that's a very significant difference in the approach of the game, the emotional side of what you let bubble up kind of in the way that you play the game. And I I distinctly remember my very first practice making a decision that every time I came to the line at the edge of the gridiron at the edge of the practice field, I said, all right, for the next three hours, you're going to be the most physical, hostile and aggressive player on this field. And it was like a switch. I turned the switch on, stepped onto the field. we're gonna unpack we're gonna unpack more of your childhood because i can't just you know there's a lot to unpack there yeah walk me through a right there you were saying how you would think about how you wanted to show up when you got between the lines Mm -hmm. Uh, was there any tools or techniques that you would use to get yourself into that state or that space of being hostile and and physical and aggressive yeah i think it was a lot of emulating great examples, you know, so I used to watch like Troy Polamalu game film, uh, you know, legendary linebackers and such to look at, okay, what does it look like to be aggressive, but done in a pointed direction, right. And done with within the rights or roles and responsibilities of your position. And I think I'd gotten really good at using techniques to, like I said, callous the emotional part, hide that part of me that I, that I felt was fractured, that I felt like, was just shameful, man. Like I was just confused and, and it was so much that I, so much energy was channeled in, into just suppressing stuff that when I realized that I could almost use that emotional pain as this, as this physical way to purge some of that without having to talk about what actually happened, football was very natural, right? And that's sort of the perfect recipe for that. So I think I used the tools that I used as a kid to suppress. I just now pointed them in a way in performance for me to show like my mental capacity is my greatest attribute. I know that it is, it is the part that the, the part that allows me to persevere the part that that narrative with the self, right? That, that, that part inside of you that says you're not good enough, that you'll never be good enough, that all those things. I've always been aware of that. Like, I think sometimes it takes people a long time in life to become aware that there's this thought in their head that they're buying into that maybe is not actually the essence of them or the true self. You know, they, they, they get in this incessant egoic mind and that's where their identity lies. And I think that for me, I realized early on that what I was, I didn't know that I was doing that, but then I was using the same structure or tools to create loops that allowed me to have success in football. And so I was really applying the same sort of mental savvy uh, in both instances. And look, being sexually abused at 10 is not something that I think anyone wishes on anyone, at least no, God, no. certainly I don't. And I'm sure you don't. Um, but in a way, it sounds like it served you on the, on the football field. Can you just unpack that a little bit more for me? Yeah. In an awful way, but yet a way that drove me, man. I, I it literally, I know for a fact today, I say with complete confidence, I would not have achieved the way I did. I would not have made it to the NFL had that abuse not happened. 
Now, I, the talent is one thing and the drive for, you know, your sort of heroes and the Brett Favre's of the world and what you want to be when you grow up. But, dude, there's a, a lot of people experience that same thing that are even more talented than me. But they, they actually didn't have that deep-rooted thing, that's, that insidious thing that was almost the slave, the slave driver, you know? And that was the part that inside of me, it was like the shark in the water. If I stopped swimming, I was going to get eaten. And so I had this internal drive that, that eclipsed most of those that were, you know, in my same ecosystem that just made me want to continue to be better. But in, as the story will go, right, like there's a lopsided nature to that. And then when that stuff shows up, it surfaces and it rebounds in a really, really ugly way. And a lot of that is not dealing with some of that emotional baggage. There's a lot for me going on in my head right now. One is the idea of post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress. So pain can go in really different directions when we experience pain uh, or, or any type of adversity. Yours is a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so the research around post-traumatic growth suggests that if you go through something traumatic, yes, you can be stressed from that and it can be paralyzing and crippling. And other times it can also lead to this immense growth for people. Metamorphosis, um, baby. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Um, and then the other thing that I know we talked about when we first got together is my sort of framework for mindset for preparation being different yeah. than mindset for performance. So a lot of what you're describing is a maximizer, somebody who was self-critical, somebody who was perfectionist, somebody who, you know, always was looking to get better and improve and become more yes. and become more and become more. Uh, we call it the growth mindset in a lot of ways in, mm -hmm. in the world of psychology. Um, but I'm curious about in college specifically, it sounds like you did shift out of that when the lights were on because when then, especially at the position, you switched from a quarterback, which requires a certain cognitive um, decision-making. Mm -hmm. And not to say that linebacker doesn't require that, but it's a different position. Yeah. I'm trying to get into what allowed you to also be successful when the lights came on um, in college. Yeah. I'd say, you know, the idea that we talked a bit about this before was that, you know, you're a human being, not a human doer. And so your worth, right, in the, the, in the self and the true self is not wrapped up in your achievement or any of the action-based stuff, right? Because that's destination thinking and nothing will, you know, if you're measuring yourself constantly based around needing the next thing, you're just chasing the next thing, right? It's like lust. It's good to the touch. It's never enough. And you run this sort of, I want to avoid pain and seek pleasure in all things. And hell, that's addiction, <laughs> right? I, I'm, I'm familiar with that, right? So I think for me, when the lights came on, there was flow. There was what you said before, which is that state of being that is fluid because it's coming through with this unique mindfulness, this nature to be super present, running down on a kickoff, right? Like you can't just pause and call timeout. Uh, and so being able to be sort of in control of yourself um, within the constructs of not being in control of all things allowed me to have some flow. So I think that the idea of my aim, my, my goals, my intentions on growing, those were all in that becoming mindset, right? They're like, I am going to achieve. But I think that's all in the preparation. That's in the practice. That's in the film study. That's in the, and that's being willing to do the things that other people maybe are not because you're so hell bent on achieving this thing. But if that's not balanced with the performance of that flow, that state of being that is not tied to the outcome, because if you live in the manifesting, right, the, the outcome takes care of itself. Like I, you know, I got little kids and I, I don't care about their outcomes. I care about their effort. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that we typically, when we think about achieving large goals, yeah, you maybe think about the end goal and you chunk it down. And I did that in football, but I allowed myself to be, stay, stay so present. And I actually relished in the fact of failing that allowed me to understand the next stepping stone to aim a little better. But I don't think I like, I judged myself so hard when it wasn't happening the way that I had positioned in my mind. I was always allowing for a little bit of course correction. I'm so fascinated by this idea of becoming and being, and I really am wrestling with it. So I'd love to tease it out with you. Yeah. You're a wise sage. And so I think in our culture, in American culture, we have always let the becoming and use the becoming to try to be. So do more to be more. Um, But maybe uh, other, other philosophies and other cultures really focus on being. And then from the being you become more. And I'm trying to think about what best serves the people that I serve my clients or the listeners, mm-hmm. are we better served focusing on the becoming and then being from there? Or are we better served focused on the being and let the becoming happen from that? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. And, and that's the, look, black and white under a microscope are both gray. Like, and this is, you know, people like me, I'm such that absolute thinker, right? I need black and white. What's the formula? What's the equation? What's the formula? What's, and within football, those constructs did have a minute to minute, like what I should be doing to go out and, and achieve. But then you get into like the outside world, for my case, and, and looking at business and, and growth and just my own self and going, wait a second, if I don't have a framework for living, that means I've been following and abiding in someone else's belief system. And that's where you have to have the healthy autonomy to grow. Your parents instilled some stuff, right? Uh, You know, those around you, your byproduct of those that you're right around, right? So they're kind of influencing that part. But ultimately, it's up up to self-discovery. So I think that the receivership, the state of being is where you receive what is being shown to you. That, That revelation, the revealing of, wow, divine breath, inspirata, inspiration, breathed into the lungs, that is a gift. Right. And when you come to that and, you st- and you're able to sit in stillness, that place of gratitude, when you come from a place of appreciation and not expectation, gratitude follows. And so I think that's where you receive the call, the inspiration, the enthusiasm to go out and do, to aim, to become, to achieve. But I think if you if the becoming is goal oriented to earn the place of being, that's a, t- that's a tower that's ready to tip over. I think the foundation has to come from stillness and then lived out. Now, in my case, I learned it the opposite direction. It's just now that I'm starting to realize, and I think that life is, is less of a circle and more of a spiral. Like I, I see that there's this, this, and the spirals all around us, we won't go Fibonacci on you, but if we start to look in, in, in even the muscles, right? As a trainer, agonist, antagonist, muscles work in pairs, the yin and the yang in, in Eastern culture versus Western culture being like grind, kill it, you know, go out and achieve. I, look, I like Gary Vee and what he does, right? He's a freaking intoxicating individual. It's awesome. But then at the same time, I hear somebody talking like Jordan Peterson, who is saying it from a different perspective in his own right, still passionate, but exported differently. And in, within their rights, their constructs, I think they're both right because they're talking from their own experience and their place of being. And so I think that the nature of today is to go, this book tells me how to do it. I'm going to follow it. Ew, it's a slippery slope, man. If they're listening, there's a listener right now that says, well, Brian and David said this and I agreed with them. So that's where I should start. Well, you got to explore that. Man, I love that. And I love what you said. Uh, 
specifically about Gary V because I just watched a video with him yesterday and I thought it was brilliant because he was saying, look, like, I love the process. I love the grind. I love getting into the weeds and I want to make a $2 billion business and I want to own the New York jets and yada, yada, yada. And he's saying, but that's what gives me happiness. That shouldn't necessarily be what gives you happiness. Like right. you have to figure out what you want for yourself. If you want to be home for dinner every night at six o'clock with your family, yep. good, go ahead and do that. Well, uh, I'll go one further. Why happiness? Right. Cause, and this is goes into like the definition, my definition of success today is much more tipped towards significance then it would be success on an outward, outward measure, right? And so is happiness the goal or are you recognizing that it's not always happiness, but it, it, you can find joy in every moment amidst circumstance, right? Regardless of what's going on around you that is rooting you in what is being benefiting for you, maybe resilience, and it may be happiness, you know? But to try to achieve something that kind of makes you seem like you own it like it, scarcity can drive people to do two things. One is to cling to what they have or to go, man, screw it, dude. I'm going just let go and surrender. And so I think in most of my joyous, most happiest moments, it's actually in surrender, not in clinging. So I, do I want to be happy? Well, is, is that a verb or is that something that's going to continue or is that something that's fleeting? Because if I chase that as the outcome, it's destination thinking. I love it. Uh, and then I was also thinking about a monk who spends most of their life being, um, mm -hmm. and that wouldn't work for me. Like, that's not how I want, I, I want to become more. I, I, yeah. I strive to become more. And, you know, I, I like what you said also about the spiral compared to a circle. Cause as I think about the framework just for performance. So like what I'm pretty passionate about is I don't want to write a book or have a podcast just on character because I, look, I try to live the life that I live the best I can, but yeah. I know that I'm not a perfect human and who am I to throw stones at other people who live their other, live the way that they want to live. And God bless pastors and yeah. rabbis and imams who can, you know, tell people how to live. I, sure. I just, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But what I do feel comfortable about is figuring out how do you maximize performance? And yeah. uh, I think, you can be a maximizer without being wise and you can be wise without being a maximizer. So I'm not suggesting that you maximize at the expense of being wise, but I am suggesting that this framework of preparation mindset and performance mindset can help you maximize. And I encourage everybody to create some wisdom from within about what they intentionally want to do, which is why yeah. I think intention is such a big piece. And well, you can't, I, the earning of wisdom is key. Because I think that if you're like, look, Richard Rohr writes Falling Upward. It's a fantastic book. And it talks about the first half of life is about the cup. And it's about building the cup and what's on the outside, what everybody sees. And it's kind of like flexing your will, your ego, what, what you're proud about. And then at some point in your life, and it may happen a race around age, it may happen because of trauma, it may happen, who knows. Then all of a sudden something occurs and it's like, click. Oh, I actually don't care about what people see on the outside. All I care about is what I pour into it. So I think that the idea of optimization is unique to each person, but the supreme self, right? We talked about, I think last time, that stupid fidget spinner example that I give, right? If that give thing again. is on- Give it again. If it's on equal access, right? You've got three vectors, and if that's on equal access, it'll spin and, and spin and spin and spin. But if that thing's Mickey Mouse ears, and suddenly it's gonna womp a little bit, it's gonna slow down, it's not gonna operate optimally, like you just said. So if, if the goal in going out and maximizing your life then gives you a little bit of wisdom, like, man, I went a little far there, then good. That's part of living and it's healthy because if that fidget spinner is three vectors and it's mind, body, and, and soul, right? Mind, body, and spirit. And 
you recognize that depending on the part, the time of your life that you're in, like, like Richard Rohr said, maybe it's the first half of life. Mine would have been football. So my physical and mental was all focused on that. Those things were flexed big, but the emotional side wasn't tended to. So now all of a sudden there's a wobble. And if that wobble goes on long enough, right, that alignment's going to cause the car to crash and it's going to be epic and it's going to be epic in a bad way. But if you think about a Venn diagram and if you have pretty good harmony between those three vectors where they intersect, that middle section is the supreme self. And it should have an awareness to why the physical is out in front. Because I do think you have to be able to flex into one of them more than the others based around a daily or weekly or seasonal life. Uh, and that's where I think that it's, it's about becoming aware that you're aware as to why the why behind why that one is out in front. What would your career have looked like if you had the emotional strength um, that you have now? Football career. Let's just stay with that, that part. You know, I would say that's always a difficult question. People say, man, if you could take what you know now and go back, right? And, and the truth is, is I've earned what I know now as a result of enduring some of those scars that, that made my decisions not to go back. Um, and it's not because of, I've had plenty of concussions, but it's not just because of the physical nature of the game and where my body was and other surgeries and things. It was actually just a gut, man. It was like my identity was so wrapped up in football um, that, you know, and I haven't stated it yet, but as I went through, you know, kind of college to the NFL and carved out a respectable, you know, four and a half year career, Ultimately, uh, when I got my shoulder hurt with the Seahawks, I went in this downward spiral of drug addiction. It was just easier to stuff my face with opiates. But that identity crisis was the exact sort of bottom that allowed me to look at David in the mirror and ask, who, who am I without this sport? Surely my gifts, my skills, my talents, and even the scars, the things that I've had to endure, they're not just relevant to this game. It's prepared me now for life. And so I think about the success I had in football, which positioned me to allow myself to be willing to go into those scars to now see that the platform football gave me is much more built on the significance of the future rather than the success of the past. And that's the difference. And you said you did some inner work uh, emotionally. Can you just expand yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, I worked with some therapists, uh, did some psychosocial stuff as well, worked with a coach out in New York for about a year and a half, weekly Zoom calls, um, then going in and doing a bunch of reading and other just unpacking, right? It was, it was learning to tend to the little 10-year-old boy that emotionally was bankrupt. And dude, it's, it scared me. It's crazy to think about how scary it was to go into something because it was locked down for so long. But as soon as I started to do so, it wasn't cognitive behavior therapy that you have to return to it and harvest out this thing and again and again and again. It was much more the sensory moto. Actually, I got the book right here, the sensory moto psychotherapy. Um, and I bought the instructor's book because I wanted to know how they, I'm a psychology graduate, right? This is my wheelhouse. This is why we could talk all day. But that book allowed me to recognize um, perhaps the lump in my throat, the heart racing, the sweatiness, uh, you know, the pain, the, the, the tightness in my chest, all as markers that was recognizing that my focus and my attention, my thoughts were putting on the things that were creating an emotional distress. And, and before I could even identify the feeling with a word, right? Like guys were especially bad at this. Uh, before I could ever acknowledge, hey, look, I am feeling depressed or I am feeling blank. Uh, I could notice something in my body. And then the therapist would help me. Like when you recognize that, uh, let's take a conscious breath. Let's find five things you can see in the room you're in. Four things that you can feel. I don't care if you touch your hair, your sock, your pants, whatever. Three things that you can hear. Two things you can smell. 
What's the inside of your mouth taste like? Take a deep breath and welcome back to the present moment. That's a grounding tool that was part of my toolkit of ways to recognize when myself, my brain wanted to take me into what I coulda, shoulda, woulda done or what I could, should or would do moving forward rather than being back to where I am feeling in the now. And so recognizing I didn't have to be scared of that acceptance of what I was feeling, but then a willingness to recognize that I am in control of where I put my thoughts and my emotions, like where I'm actually putting my attention, that is the byproduct of what I feel. And so I started to recognize areas where I'm like, whoa, the repeatable pattern that I'm doing, even though I'm telling, it's like if, um, if you want to move away from something, but you stay focused on it, you're just going to orbit it. If you want to move towards something, you'll move away from what you want to move away from. But you have to put that aim, and that's where I think there's a healthy level of becoming. I started to recognize some of this, this emotional reservoir of stuff I didn't like. And there was a part of that that needed to heal, yes, but there's also a part of me that, that actually wanted to wallow in it a little bit. Felt like, heck, felt like I almost deserved it, right? And that's where the good coaches, the outside people to say, hey, man, uh, that guilt, that shame, dude, that's, that, is no, that is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with the real you. So you get a little bit of that goodwill hunting moment, right? That it's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault. And yet you have to be willing to give yourself that moment to eventually free yourself. And that's what it took probably two, three years. And then frankly, all of the people with physical disabilities that my gym trains, that they gave me the emotional courage because I, I couldn't preach at them every day saying, hey, look, you're not broken. You know, if you, if you act broken, then you're going to get treated broken. You know, it, if I went into that with them, I was like, whoa, where's the compassion for myself staring back at me in the mirror, not just for those that I'm serving at this, at this gym. So emotionally you weren't full or strong uh, as you look back in your life, but mentally and physically, you even said like those buckets were pretty full. Mm -hmm. um, why do you think you had, we could talk about the physical stuff. That's not my wheelhouse. It's not really my thing. So mm -hmm. but what I'm really interested in is, is that mental capacity where do you think that came from for you? And even as I sit here and listen to you, what you've done with the inner work that you've done and your ability to articulate and put words together and put ideas together, there's a gift in there. So yeah. I'm trying to figure out your mental models and where those came from and how those got formulated. And do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, you know, my dad used to make me go to Toastmasters with him when I was a young kid, and I grew up in church. So I think there's a natural orator in me, some innate, some just based around what I experienced. Uh, but I think the part, I, I've just always been curious. I think curiosity is, is, is an attribute that is just not complimented enough. Uh, and it's just kind of like, I remember being in college in philosophy class one day, and the teachers like point to the whiteboard. He's like, this whiteboard is white. It's an absolute truth no matter what you say. I'm like, damn, I'm really going to have to raise my hand. So I raised my hand and I said, you know, okay, but what if you're blind? And the guy's like, uh, and I didn't do it to be a dick. I mean, maybe a little bit, but, but I was doing it because I, I like to challenge status quo with the idea of seeing that little perspective shift, just that one degree. And so I think that the why today for me is to inspire people to look at the way they look at themselves to then become the change that they seek. You know, if, if you care about, you know, your car, don't expect somebody else to take care of it, right? If you care about this country, don't expect the government to take care of it. Don't expect that you live in such a way that allows 
the things in your life to have a complement to better those around you in the rights that it's healthy selfish. Because when you bring your best self, the byproduct of that, the way that you prioritize your time, your focus, it is going to offer other people something too. And then if nothing else, just an example of how to live well. How much of mentally, the models that you use mentally and how you see the world has changed over the years? And how much of, because I didn't know you when you were 16 years old, yeah. years old, six years old. Yeah. So how much of it has evolved? How much of it do you think was instilled in you at Toastmasters and at church? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just curious to get a sense of like how you've changed and evolved over the years. Or yeah. do you think a lot of that was already inside of you at a young age? I think my capability to articulate it is, has grown significantly and kind of tactically and technically. Uh, but watching my parents stop sometimes three, four times on our route to church to pick up people with intellectual disabilities, some of which that hadn't showered in weeks in our car. I remember like after church cleaning the, the upholstery of our car, just the scent of this BO and my mom being like, Hey, this is how, this is how we operate. Um, we love these people and we want to be able to serve them. And something that dawned on me of recent was this, that like you can serve without compassion. You can go to a soup kitchen and serve and volunteer. You can check a box, but you can't offer compassion, real compassion without service because compassion interrupts. It stops you. The trajectory of what you were on, all of a sudden you notice something and it's like this, oh, I, and that's, this is what Starbucks and Howard Schultz featured on that Upstanders documentary that I stopped in the parking lot with this guy with no legs, challenged him to work out. He was addicted to heroin, suicidal, you know, sleeping with a pistol every night. Like, and you fast forward now, it's one of my best friends. He's married now. He's going to school. He's trains people at our gym. He's in our current class training right now. So I guess the point I'm making is I saw a lot of it emulated, right? But I think innately I had something that, tr that intuitively I was, I think with my gut instinct, I, I had an intuitive gut an awareness and an emotional alignment that allowed me to read people and read situations. And actually the abuse as a kid, I think helped to tune that because I thought to myself, wow, I didn't avoid that. I should have, right. Felt like I couldn't trust my instincts anymore. And so for a period of my life, when I really wanted to just numb myself, I think that's what I did. I basically looked to my right or my left to get the gathered kind of average or mean of how to act accordingly for success or acceptance. And I did that to the best of my ability, but it wasn't until late when I said, man, I got to tap back into this second brain in my gut. You know, that's the, that is the key for me to being in alignment that brings this harmony between my just insatiable appetite to learn and curiosity, but harbored and throttled back to that kind of state of being that is centered in an emotional alignment that, that, that emotional wellness allows me to receive what it is to then move back up here to the intellectual side. Cause the brain and the head, it wants to protect me every four seconds. It scans, right? Safety and survival, you know, seek pleasure, avoid pain. But the underneath that is that knowing. And that's kind of that funny word that people are like, what do you mean by knowing? Like, dude, when I was in my most depressed, suicidal, hating myself, really loathing myself, I still knew I was going to be okay. I knew it at the core of me, I was going to be okay. And I can't tell you where that came from, but I think of, of recent, I now start to realize that a lot of people can feel that way, even in their despair. And as soon as they're empowered to recognize that their despair may even be the qualifying factor that helps them to help somebody in a similar situation down the road, there's hope in that. And hope is that priceless currency. So I'd be remiss if I didn't go into suicide and depression and... Yeah. Uh, we had on a, a podcast guest, Dr. Mark Golston, 
and he is an expert in, in suicide. And he used the word despair. He said, if you talk to people who are suicidal, the word despair is the word that captures the, the state or the space that they're in. And I think for people listening to this, certainly me listening to you, you were so articulate, so bright. You showed your biceps earlier. You've got these, these nice <laughs> biceps. Uh, you played in the NFL. We didn't even mention you were the last pick in the NFL, quote unquote, Mr. Irrelevant, and you <laughs> still had a four and a half year career. Yeah. So by all measures of society, you said great grades out of college, uh, high school, golden boy. By the, from the outside looking in, you are this person that does seem to have it all. Um, yet there's a time in your life where you have despair. And so I think for someone who hasn't been in that spot, I still am trying to learn, um, what it's like for people when they are in that spot. And honestly, um, I think there's two reasons why I'm so curious about it. One is selfish because I know that life is complicated and challenging and I could be in that spot in the future. And sure. that's just, that's just truth. Yeah. And then two, um, we all are surrounded by people that are susceptible to that yeah. on a moment to moment basis. Yeah. So the more light that you can shed on how you dealt with it, A, might be helpful for me, B, might be helpful for our listeners and C, might be helpful for our listeners, friends or, or strangers or whoever it might be. Yeah. You know, 22 veterans commit suicide every day in this country, right? It's a staggering statistic, but it's not just a veteran-based issue, right? And I think that the way to address or tackle mental health issues and suicide being one of the most significant, uh, I would say it comes, through, it comes about empowerment. You cannot stop somebody from doing it. You cannot save anybody. One of my best friends, Sergeant Stephen Jackal, uh, committed suicide January 3rd last year. I'm actually taking a necklace that his, his widow gave me just last week up to the top of Kilimanjaro next week to bury that thing for him up there. Um, it's touched my life in, in massive ways. Suicide has uh, lost six friends and it's not, it sucks. And yet it's, it's putting a permanent solution to a temporal situation. And it is something that, that I feel like when that despair occurs, it, let's go back to the achievements. So looking, you know, again, this is the world of social media, the projected self, everything's perfect on the outside, right? Um, but when we do that, or we look at comparisons, that's where that expectation comes in and the resentment starts to harbor and you don't have that appreciation and gratitude. So a gratitude practice, whether you feel suicidal or depressed or not, is critical. Even more critical, I think, to create an alignment that is, that is based around like when my life was, when I'm running down the field in, in NFL, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I, I was checking things off, but I wasn't actually appreciating them. It was like, it was hollow. It was me trying to, it was really me just not being willing to love myself. I was trying to do things as that slave driver rather than acknowledging that I was a, that I was a mortal and yet my purpose here on earth was so significant that the evolution of human consciousness on earth is, is, is part of my responsibility. And yet I'm like a speck of sand in this whole timeline of, of eternity. And so how do, you, how do you live into that tension to recognize that you, the human experience is very synonymous? There's, regardless of if you have hands and, and legs or not, uh, you're going to experience a lot of the same emotion stuff that anybody with their arms and legs would. 
And so as I've drawn these comparisons, these connections, I start to think about, man, the times in my life when I've been achieve, 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 but not been in the alignment to receive the acknowledgement or the gift of why I was doing that. It was just, it, my why was wrong. My why was hell bent on doing it so that it would bring me happiness rather than having the alignment, right? And a centered understanding of who I am, why I do what I do, and then choosing to engage with it and the outcome didn't matter. That's, I think, the difference. And when you're in that space, can you take us there and what it felt like and how you got yeah. out of it? Look, I had a time around Thanksgiving this year and it was dark. It was ugly. I didn't want to get out of bed. And um, yeah, people that don't ex have never experienced that, they don't understand. And I don't want them to. Um, but if it does happen in their life, uh, you know, what I do now is I actually take my dog. I have a 130 pound bloodhound, Jeffrey, big old guy, slobber monster. And we, I throw him in the car and we take a little road trip and we just drive and we'll drive so we feel like it's time to stop. There's no real agenda. I mean, I think motion is the ability to release some of the emotion and that movement is very key if you feel like you're in that place. Because what you want to do is isolate. When you're in despair, you want to lock yourself in a room and isolate. But what I think you can force yourself to do or override some of those chemical issues are by getting yourself moving. Um, when I was really like, I mean, I climbed up onto the balcony of 27th floor in Hawaii of our freaking place in Maui, um, when and my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time, was with me. And I, dude, I jumped up on, I had just had shoulder surgery, had a bad shoulder surgery, I jumped up on these, the, the bars and I was hanging. And just looking at, like, I don't even remember it. I was so out of my mind. Now, part of the drugs were a big part of that. But that's heavy, man, and that's really dark. And yet, because I've scratched the surface of that, um, you know, one of my best friends, his wife called me on Sunday and was like, Hey, he just left the house saying some stuff that scared me, blah, blah, blah. And I bust into 24 hour fitness where this guy was working out like Mark Wahlberg and four brothers, dude, not even like saying hi to anybody. Just boom. And I just said, Hey man, let's go talk. Let's go hop in the car. So I think that the peril that people feel if they'd recognize that there's a purpose in that pain and there's such a, a unique opportunity for the privilege of that to be like you mentioned earlier on, like you love connecting people, bringing awesome people together. Well, I also love connecting people that have dealt with some real shit, man. It's real bad stuff, getting them together. And then all of a sudden they realize like, man, wait a second, I'm not the only one. And oh, we can start to help other people. That's the way I think people are humane to humanity. Concussions you mentioned earlier, um, trauma in your life. Anything else family-wise as far as uh, addiction or uh, depression uh, that you're aware of genetically? Yeah, my uncle uh, who's passed recently, but he was a recovering alcoholic and then he had some issues with opiates as well. That wasn't the cause of his death, but ended up being a heart attack from some other stuff. But I mean, he, he ran his body hard and there's, you know, I think that... The identification of addictive behaviors is the first step toward freedom, right? Like there's a reason in AA that the first step is that acceptance, you know, the surrendering to something that's out of your control. And I think that's a lesson for all of us. I mean, you can be addicted to social media, you can be addicted to porn, gambling, like, you know, fill in the blank. The isms, you know, work. Do me when I did get clean and then start this gym, it was hell bent, full throttle. Like I got this new thing, my passion. I was, I was a workaholic. 
And I was trying to manage my for-profit business at the same time I was starting this nonprofit and there was some stress. But I remember coming home one night late, 2 a.m. or so, and my wife was like one light on over the kitchen table, like interrogation room style. I'm like, oh, oh God. And I, I sat down and she looked at me and she said, do I have to be missing an arm or a leg for you to put the same type of focus and attention on me and the girls? Mm. Dude, but she wasn't doing it to take a jab. She was just stating the truth. She knew I was better than that. And I said to her, I said, look, I'm human. I'm sorry, but that's not an excuse. I'll be better every day that passes. And I have been. I'm not perfect, but that's the awareness that allowed me like, man, that addictive behavior, it just finds a new ecosystem to play. Now, there's a benefit to when I get in those modes because I'm uber productive, uber focused, and uber driven, but to the degree that it becomes my downfall. And so I think that, you know, if people can acknowledge areas in their life that they want to change, having and expressing that to somebody else will hopefully create some type of centered accountability, like what 12-step gives addicts, something like that. You've been around incredible people in your gym. You've been around, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, incredible people in a locker room. Um, you've spent time with presidents of the United States, Helen, (laughs) (laughs) like these are people that, um, have made a massive impact in this world in in one way, shape or form. Some of them are doing it anonymously and some of them are doing it on a world stage. Is there somebody that you look to and you say that person is doing an amazing job of becoming and being that person is doing an amazing job of being great at their craft and being great at their family. Um, Is there someone that that comes to mind? And if so, I'd love for you to sort of share how that person navigates the world. Yeah. One of my favorites, which is, uh, I mean, I grew up on Fresh Prince, but Will Smith, uh, deeply respect the man. I've got to spend a little bit of time with him. Um, I deeply respect his ability and his presence with his family. And I think that Will almost, I would kind of say similar to me in that first half of life, second half of life kind of comparison I gave earlier. Will in the first half was, you know, I mean, he was Fresh Prince, man. And he lived it, right? And he lived in his action movies and his talk. And I think now as he's, he's waned in years and yet still is significant in Hollywood, I think he has recognized his priorities and done so in a way that he's just having fun, man. And I think you can tell when you meet somebody and they're this presence, this air, but they have this alignment that they know who they are. Uh, and that's just a really powerful experience. I mean, President Bush is a great example of a man that just you meet and you're like, whoa. You know, Howard Schultz, who's been a friend and mentor and done some really significant things with me, he's another. I think that he's businessman first, you know, and he's now, as he's looking to do some things politically and moving into different arenas, He's now starting to create the narrative more around his kind of emotional and mental alignment stuff. But um, yeah, it doesn't even have to be, I I think quite often about um, one of my guys on staff at the gym. He's an endurance racer, very successful. Um, He looks younger than all of us. He's like 44 years old. Um, But he he teaches our mindfulness course uh, at the gym and what we do with mindful performance and intention setting, all these different things. Mo is an example of tending to the parts of himself on a daily basis that allow him to show up well for those that he loves. And it's such a refreshing feeling when you're around people like that because there's no agenda, they're present with people, and yet they have such a clarity over who they are and so it best compliments the people next to them. You mentioned the 
time where you're working till 2 a.m. You come home, wife has to shine a light in your eye and <laughs> snap you in a different direction. Um, what do you do? It doesn't even have to be daily, but it could be daily. 24 yeah. hours is kind of arbitrary, but what are habits or routines that you do to ensure, I love what you said about Mo, you know, he, he's just very mindful of how he wants to put attention to the things that deserve his attention, something along those lines. Yep. What are you doing or what tools or techniques or systems do you have in place to yep. make sure that you're optimizing your human experience? Yeah, the morning is my time. That's my jam. And the meditation starts every day. Uh, 10, 15 minutes, sometimes guided, sometimes not. And, and, and if I am kind of feeling in a space where my mind cannot seem to ground itself, then I will exercise first and then go to my meditation. But typically, I use the meditation as an opportunity to create space around whatever is sort of calling to me that, doesn't, that, that wants to steal my attention. Um, and then from there, I cook a big breakfast. I, I work out and cook a breakfast. I spend as much time with my girls in the morning as I can. I got a five and a three-year-old um, and just revel in the way their minds work and the beauty of being a kid and the innocence in that. Um, but I can also do two or three different check-ins during the day that are almost like biomarkers. That I'll take three minutes out and just breathe and I actually pause and go, what am I feeling? What am I actually feeling? Can I assign? At one point, I actually used to have an alarm. This was part of my deep work. I used to have an alarm that would go off. It would ding every hour on the hour, and it would say check-in, emotional check-in. And early on, my coach, he'd make me text him. and I had to come up with the word that I was feeling. And I'm like, times I'm like Googling, all right, what word am I feeling right now? Because I can't put anything to it. You know, I'm like, I'm either happy, angry, or sad, like, or mad or something, you know, like, and then I started to broaden it, started to get a little bit more um, range of, man, I'm, just kind of pleasant right now. Oh man, I'm, I'm actually, I'm pretty gracious in what just happened. Hey man, there's this appreciation for this thing. And when those start to become the, the consistent things, dude, what shows up in my life is miracle after miracle. I could give you 150 athletes have gone through our nine week program, totally free. They all have disabilities. They've all transformed their lives because they've transformed the way that they've seen themselves. The physical stuff, the time and discipline, that stuff changes. But what festers between the ears is the parts that we're trying to really engage like those athletes they all have a story that you would be shocked jaw dropping to go man that's that's no coincidence there is a divine nature to how the hell we found you and you found us and the things that you're doing and i take great responsibility and excitement in the fact that it's not about me i could die tomorrow this thing goes on like that's extraordinary and i think that that that's the that's where you just you never know how to trust a smile or a scowl you know, you pass somebody, you got to be open and willing to allow them and their story to be heard before you can pass that judgment, like you mentioned earlier. You mentioned feeling and, and the coach asking you to really explore feelings. When do you feel most alive and what does that feel like for you? Hmm. I, man, we're about to climb Kilimanjaro. I mean, when I'm doing hard things is where I feel most alive. I just do, man. I just get into this state. I love trying hard things. I did a show for National Geographic, no food or water for six days in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle on this little four-foot life raft. And in those times of the suck fest, uh, you find out what, what's true, and that, that truth eliminates the false. And so I love surfing for that reason. Um, I'm not great at it, but I love getting thumped out there and then just realizing that like, I just feel alive. Um, the other time that I really find and take great sort of reverie in 
is those states in meditation where I kind of lose awareness of my entire body. And you just feel like, I don't care if it's, you know, people describe it as floating or this, this disassociation from the vessel that I call myself here on planet earth uh, and go beyond that. Cause I, you know, without going into too much quantum, quantum physics and quantum leap stuff, I, I just, I believe that the energy, the, the, what I am is points to something greater than just, you know, being born and dying one day. It's about the dash in between those two. And if I leave this world with nothing, I came into this world with nothing. The only real conclusion I can draw is I'm supposed to give of as much of myself and my experience while I'm here to the degree that I can within the reach that I'm given. And that's sort of what I do on a daily basis. I just try to think about just like I did in football. Dude, I knew I was going to play in the NFL. I knew it. Yeah, I was the last pick. Became a starter rookie year. Did all that. Yeah. I just knew, man. And it wasn't because I, on paper it made any sense. I just knew, and I think it was because of what I feel like God, the universe, whatever you want to call it, was preparing me for now. And I think that that's why I take great honor in the fact that I didn't. Dude, the Cowboys called. I was a year and a half, two years into this gym and what I was doing serving these veterans and these people with disabilities. Sean Lee got hurt and the Cowboys called. And I could have signed and been there and been in my own city and, you know, but this Navy SEAL who was with me when they called, he said, do you want me to tell you what I think you're thinking? I said, yes, sir. Commanding officer, SEAL Team 5. And he said, I don't think you want to push pause on what you're doing with these guys. I'm like, man, you're right. I called back uh, my agent and the Cowboys. And I said, hey, I'm retired. That was the last time I, talk, I thought about football. So I, that's the clarity that proves that I'm growing. I don't know if I'll ever grow up, but I'm growing enough to see that Everything is happens for a reason. It's not some fluff cliche, even though typically the cliches are true. That's why they're cliches. Uh, I do have a purpose, and it's not just to exist. It's to do something that looks at people and then calls them to close that gap, man, between who they thought they were and who they knew they could become because they know that. They just sometimes need somebody to bet on them, and that's the role that I play. Is there a word that you would use to describe yourself? Oh, I'd love to throw out like indomitable or something really rad and cool like that. I would say it's not so much fearless as it is it's curiosity. It, I'm curious. I like to tinker with things. I want, you know, the other day I finished the meditation. I was outside and, and this bird flew over me. And I was like, oh, I took a note, kind of looked at it. And I, it flapped twice and then coasted. And in my typical human brain, it said, but it'd be cool if this bird right here, if, if it could do less flapping and more coasting. And it, I like chuckled at the thought that came in my head. I'm like, wait a second. Like, first of all, I didn't create this bird. And second of all, like the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, like did. And it created it perfectly. And in, and in both flapping and in coasting, this bird is living out its exact call. Right. And typical for me to go, oh, I wish I could improve it for a little bit. Cause I, I'm thinking this bird wants to be more lazy. Because we're looking at it. that. That's the that's how my brain works. And sometimes there's a benefit to that. And sometimes I look and I'm like, dude, I, you gotta let go of that. You've mentioned God. Do you have a religious framework, a spiritual framework? How would you how would you classify that? Yeah, I grew up Christian. I would still consider myself a Christian. I think today, uh, I actually I don't think I know God is experienced, and he's experienced oftentimes through uh, people, through nature, through his word, if you want to call the Bible or divine book, or, you know, the teachings and practices that are lived out 
that I think, look, I don't do real well inside the four walls of a church. <laughs> I, I, I'm a church in the wild type of guy. Now, do we go to church? Yes. Do I love the church home that I have? But it's about the people. And I think that's the thing with my gym is like, that's my sanctuary, man. Um, the gym, our gym is agnostic of, of race, gender, sexual preference, amputee, spinal cord injury, veteran, civilian. I mean, I can, I can name a whole variety of things that's this hodgepodge of community done well. And when you do that and you create this tribe, you know, and it's around the similarities, not the differences. I think that's church done well, man. Like to me, the world doesn't need more brick and mortar churches or gyms. Needs people that inside are passionate about what it means to, to be spiritual, to walk a path of betterment, and then to go out and live it out to, to, to be the proof of what they're talking about. Are we all hypocrites? Hell yes. Are humans perfect? Hell no. Uh, but I do think that the, in, the, in a room where there's, I remember this in, in an AA meeting once, there's a guy who was using, you know, AA, they love their acronyms. And, you know, God was like group uh, or good orderly direction. And then one day, this old timer who had like 30 years of sobriety, he said, God stands for a group of drunks. And I remember being offended. I was like, oh, not my God. You know, I, I crack up now today at the like, my God, your God thing, our God. Thing. Yeah. And like, if you can, the truth is, is I got pissed off because my definition of God was what was convenient for me. And damn, man, this dude was like, you know, what I mean by that is that when people are broken here in spirit, but are seeking something in a higher power that allows them to be better to realize that they can rise above these things, God is present. And I was like, okay, old timer. Okay. Cause that's it, man. I, I don't really trust people that don't claim their scars cause they're not proof that they're moving beyond them, you know? And that's the gift. Not always the gift you wanted. I didn't want to be sexually abused as a kid. But dude, when I got to speak at TCU last uh, fall with 600 incoming freshmen in the Greek system, and I shared my, my story, the, the drugs, the detox, the abuse, football, what I'm doing now, all that. Like 400 of them stayed. I was there I was almost to 1 a.m. They were all lined up. They were coming up saying, hey, I was, I was a victim too. Or I've been addicted. Or I, I blame my, divorce, my parents' divorce on me and my brother. I did. And it was, they didn't want to take a picture with me because I'm LeBron James. They just wanted to reflect the truth in their heart that they were, I think, just looking for permission to do. You mentioned climbing Kili or yeah. going to climb Kili next week, Kilimanjaro. Uh, why are you doing that? Have you done it? What's, what's yeah. drawing you to, to climb up one of the biggest mountains in the world? Yeah, 19,000 is some change, man. Uh, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. I've never done anything like it. I mean, I've ran up with some 14ers and such around here, but nothing like the top floor of Africa. Doing it in conjunction with one of my best friends and former teammate, Chris Long, uh, Eagles defensive end. Uh, we're doing it with, I think it's seven or eight NFL veterans and then seven or eight combat injured veterans. Um, all together, we're taking a 12-day trip. Basically, the first half of the trip, we climb in five days. And then the back half, uh, we've raised a bunch of money. We're putting clean water in the ground in Tanzania. So we'll serve the tribes and play with the kids and all that. And so, you know, the why for me, I'm bringing one of the Marines that trains at my foundation at the gym. He just recently, six months ago, became an above-knee amputee. And he's going to climb freaking Kilimanjaro, man. It's, it's, like I said, I live with superheroes on a daily basis. And I only call them superheroes because I hate when they're patronized. And they hate being called heroes. I call them superheroes because they recognize that all of that adversity uh, allows them to see this super part of themselves. 
it's not because they, you know, it's not even because they served our country. I mean, I salute that and that's very honorable. Um, and it takes great valor to do something like that. I'll volunteer gun club. But I, I say that because they're super, because they realize the superb stuff, the extraordinary stuff is their uniqueness. And that's the gift. That's why I love being around them. What other qualities do superheroes have? You know, I think it's, there's the nature to understand the gift and the curse. You know, like in Batman, he talks about, uh, you know, being the hero long enough to watch yourself become the villain. Uh, and I think that's what my wife was saying to me the night that I came home and she interrogation room light, you know, she said, you know, look, she did say there's no mission without a margin that always stuck with me. Um, because I think that, you know, heroes are put on a pedestal and yet it's only, it only works if the hero in the narrative calls to the hero in you. You know, David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me book, which is a phenomenal read if, if anybody out there is looking for a good book to kind of motivate them. Uh, but he just talks about that. Like, hey, I just, I'm, I'm telling you all of what I did, not for you to put me on some big thing as if I'm extraordinary and this is all unattainable. Because I was where you were once too. But you got to become your own hero. What do you do to make sure that you're becoming your own hero on a regular basis? Just get honest. Get vulnerable. Um, <laughs> I... Stand up in front of a crowd and giving a speech, like that's my wheelhouse. That's that flow that we talked about, like being on a surfboard or running down on kickoff or climbing Keeley. It's, it's saying no when I want so badly to say yes to earn somebody's attention or appease somebody or please somebody to feel like I'm responsible for them. You know, when I've lost a couple of the guys in my gym, um, that same Navy SEAL, he said to me, DB, when you played football, did you care about how many tackles you made? Or did you just care about winning and losing? I said, yeah, man, just, just winning and losing. He said, well, this is opposite. Winning and losing is not up to you. You can't save anybody. But the tackles that you made, the days that you spent with these men, it's worth it. And you can't stop doing that. You can't stop loving them because the days they had with you and that you had with them, that's all really, really, really significant, man. And I think that shift in paradigm is what, yeah, why today I can find vulnerability and be okay with like, oh, I feel that feeling and I don't want to and I feel exposed, I feel naked and I know that I need to do this to grow. And so I do it. So you've expanded the business, the foundation. Um, give everyone some insight into what you're up to. Um, yeah. And then I have a follow-up question that I'll wait until after yep. finish that. Yeah, so I was started with a quadruple amputee, uh, staff sergeant in the army. They got blown up, lost all four limbs. Crazy story, staff sergeant Travis Mills. I challenged him to work out. Uh, he made a couple of funny jokes and then showed up at the gym and, and we used his greatest fear as access point. I said, what's your greatest fear? He said, well, falling, right? I'm like, great, that's where we'll start. He's like, okay, you're gonna be one of those, right? But it was less about the physical nature of the fear. It was everything about him being vulnerable. And then being willing to, so that growth producing fear encounter is critical. So anyone listening, identify a fear uh, that you think is rooted, not just in a, like a physical, like, oh, snakes or, oh, heights. Like, no, like go into something that has a mental, emotional pattern in your life that you want to free yourself from. Um, you know, that I think is the core of our program is it's about empowerment. Um, so I did some research because there was nothing out for training people with physical disabilities, AKA adaptive athletes. Like cash runs out, insurance runs out. Where do people go? Travis would try to go to a normal gym and people patronize him, interrupt him 30 times in a workout. Oh, you're such an inspiration. And that's, that's fine. It's nice. But 
the guy's just trying to get on with his life and tap into a new physicality. So I did some research and over 10 million Americans with a physical disability. That number is actually expected to double in the next decade. Uh, medical advances, diabetes, a whole host of different things that are significant in that side. But I said, great. Well, the medical community has kind of ostracized these people. They said they've done, where are all these people at? They kind of just serve victim on a silver platter. They take their, you know, medications, they take their whatever, their disability check and go and just kind of hide. So what I noticed was all my NFL players training when Travis was doing a sled pull, right? With no arms and no legs on these little short prosthetics, they suddenly lost their excuses. Like, whoa, we got a recipe here. There's something about each other championing each other and changing, broadening this perspective. And all my NFL guys wanted to train at the same time as these guys. So a couple of years of not taking any money from any of the adaptive athletes and my wife being like, yo, we got to make this responsible for our family. Uh, we started the Adaptive Training Foundation, uh, innovative nonprofit gym that was first seated with charity to sponsor these people's training. Created this nine-week protocol so we could quantify it not only with the physical but also with the mental affect and effect. So created this research study with a local university on you know, measuring the difference in extrinsic and intrinsic motivated factors and then showing their transition in such a short time, in the nine weeks. And as they graduate, they come back to train alongside and train with um, or sorry, tra and be the trainer for other adaptive athletes with similar impairments. So we can have 50, 60 adaptive athletes working out together. At first, we were just kind of nomads subleasing inside of the Metroplex, inside of affiliate gyms. And then we just last April opened a 20,000 square foot uh, HQ up in North Dallas. We have an affiliate site on Arizona State's campus, um, 5,000 square feet that is there with the Tillman Center. Uh, that's a surrogate site that is basically a pilot that replicates our nine week. We've ran that class. We're opening in Denver, Kansas City, Austin. Uh, and it's really not about, like I said, a bunch of brick and mortars. It's about, you know, this train the trainer model. I created this, uh, this specific methodology that allows us to assess and train anyone with a disability and then a protocol that teaches them how to train themselves. Um, so, you know, the goal of this is that I don't believe in charity. I started one, it's good seed capital. There's a, there's a social equity to it, but you know, who's the Mark Zuckerberg of the social sector? There's no Silicon Valley in the social sector, right? And I'm trying to make sure that we recognize good for-profit, non-profit cohesion creates sustainability regardless of recession or what the economy does. So train the trainer model, certifying trainers nationally to open up the doors of those 10 million people. When I met with Obama, that's what I told him. I said, hey, there's an 88 parking spot outside of a large corporate gym. What about a certified trainer in every gym over 100 people? That's progress. And don't make it a government mandate. That, that won't work. Right? I've never taken insurance or government money because I believe those systems are broken. And as soon as you adhere to them, then you become a part of the broken formula. So in private sector, in wise businessmen like Howard Schultz, uh, who knows a little bit about scalability, um, I presented this model and people are funding it. And in fact, not just funding it from philanthropy, but funding it through marketing budgets. Toyota, JP Morgan, Anheuser-Busch, Starbucks. Um, I mean, I could, the list could go on and on and we're grateful to have all these people on multi-year deals because there's good ROI and return on investment on what they're doing with us. And when I say with us, they're, they're actually training alongside at our gym. Some of our warriors are going on site at their HQs and employees are showing up for corporate wellness, which is brilliant, right? And people are becoming friends. And it, so what we've done is created a movement. The adaptive population, I, I didn't start the Paralympics, right? Martin Luther King didn't start the civil rights movement, but he's synonymous with that. My goal is that Adaptive Training Foundation is synonymous with the growth, post-trauma growth, 
of people with disabilities that are a mirror into all of our souls because those that can hide our handicap like I did, right, to hide the scar was really the part that defied me. It, 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 it locked me into patterns of thinking that I didn't have it in me. But what I sought was always in me. And as soon as I started to realize that, oh, the prison door that I thought was locked, all I had to do was push on it. The freedom that ensued by revealing those scars, just like these athletes do, theirs is just more visible, that suddenly unlocked this key to the greatest potential I had, to the supreme self, and to an acknowledgement of significance that actually gives me the joy and happiness in my life today that I never felt before. Where do you hope you are in, in 10 years? Gosh, great question. There's some storytelling things I want to do. One is in a docu-series with our population, you know, similar to HBO Hard Knocks training camp. Imagine watching our 10 weeks of training with a synonymous mountain climb at the end with all these different athletes from different backgrounds. So there's a storytelling piece because that's who I am at my core. I think um, I've had a few opportunities in coaching. I've had a few opportunities in politics. I think those doors will continue to remain open. Uh, I don't know if those systems are where I want to take this message or the message that I feel is on my heart. Um, I just want to continue to be present with the people I care about and impactful to use the talents that I've had in a way that I show up to meet my maker one day and I'm like whipping it in broadside in a cloud of smoke. Like, woohoo! I don't know how I did. I feel like I did pretty good, but this is all that's left, man. I squeeze the juice out of the rest of it. Awesome. So I think that's a beautiful place for us to wind down before we do, I just want to thank you. Um, this is one of the easier interviews I've ever had. So uh, thank you for making my job pretty easy. Um, and I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing, the impact you're having, uh, your courageousness, your vulnerability to share your story, which yeah. I'm sure every time you tell it, there's still an, an emotional feeling that you get um, when you speak the words that you speak. Um, we got connected by Jeff Gum and, and Kyle Maynard. Yeah, and legends. I got to watch them climb up a mountain in Israel together. And when I watched Kyle climb that mountain, he didn't have his equipment. We had wrapped towels around his elbows. I remember that. Yeah. With duct tape. And um, what I experienced when I watched people come around the corner as they were coming down and we were going up was I experienced awe. And I would just watch them be in awe of Kyle. And a lot of them would stop Kyle and say exactly what I'm sure people have said to your athletes in your gym is like, they're a hero, they're inspiring, they're motivating, whatever the word is that they choose. Yeah. I've clung to that word awe because that's been an intentional thing that I've tried to do is to try to surround myself with more people that bring awe into my life. And awe is very similar to flow state. It time yeah. slows down. Um, we're just in the present. Like when we were climbing that mountain with Kyle, I did not care how long it was going to take. I was just experiencing it. And people, when they came around the corner, they didn't care if they yeah. had to, what they had to do. They were just in awe. And I say all that to tell you that you are also awe inspiring and uh, the work that you're doing. I just want to thank you for it. And I can't wait to hear about your trip to Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro is something that I have in the back of my head as yeah. something that, that I would like to do at some point. Um, I might have to come to your gym and train with you a little <laughs> bit where I go. Um, and it's just, it's great to, to meet you and connect with you. Yeah. Uh, I had on a guy on the podcast named Cal Fussman and Cal is this incredible storyteller. And when we started our conversation, 
He said, yeah, you're a motivational speaker, Brian. You motivate people. And I was like, ooh, ooh, don't mm-hmm. call me that. I had a, mm-hmm. an emotional, visceral reaction to it. And as we started to talk, he said, okay, fine. Not motivating, but you inspire. You can inspire sure. people. And I said, okay, I can get behind that. And as we continue to talk, he said, yeah, we all need inspiration. And as I hear your story, I think such an important, there's two phrases that I love to use, which are, you don't want to wait till it rains to build a roof. So practicing gratitude, practicing being in the present, practicing taking care, taking care of ourselves. Like we don't go to the gym once we're the biggest loser and we're 500 pounds. Like you should go to the gym now. You shouldn't wait till you get diabetes to do this stuff. So don't wait till it rains to build a roof. And I think of the work that you're doing as roof building, um, like helping people build that roof regardless of their situation. And then the other thing in your story that's so relevant to me is I don't have to be sick to get better. And Certainly you had an experience when you were 10 that has helped guide you and it's part of your story, but I am at least coming from it with the belief that I think you still would have gotten to where you are today, even without that, because I think you have inside of you this thirst and this curiosity to get better that regardless of getting sick, um, whether it was drugs or abuse, um, I think you still would have gotten here. It might've been a different path and it might've been a different road. And certainly that's a part of your story. But this notion that you've had of getting better is something that I will keep with me. Then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up and and give you back the microphone, is I cannot tell you how many people, including Cal, who I mentioned, including this other person who I just interviewed for the podcast, at their very essence, the intentional performers that I've chatted with are curious. And there is absolutely something to these intentional performers uh in the fact that they are just curious about the human experience and i think it's why i love this podcast it's because i get to be curious for an hour an hour and a half Mm -hmm. two hours and just get to be in that space and for me that is one of the best drugs that i've ever injected into myself so thank you for sharing your curiosity as i said your vulnerability and taking on this leadership and being willing to to create something that is going to last beyond you. So I want to thank you for that. I also want to give you a megaphone to promote what you're passionate about. And so whatever that is and whatever you want to promote, I just want to give you the space to do that. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you for the compliment. Uh, It means a lot. I think that I love that awe. Awe is not, it's not broadcast. I I used to say this a lot, but if you don't stop and stare at the sky and it can be accumulative, it doesn't have to be at one time for at least 10 minutes a day that I can't be your friend. Uh, And people are like, ha ha ha. I'm like, no, but seriously, like, cause I don't care if you're driving or if you just pause and walk outside, I'm looking out the window now going, dude, if I went and I zoomed way out and I went like out of the universe, like out past it, I'm looking at earth, but then beyond earth and the moon and thinking like when you actually allow yourself to go there, awe happens. And then you go from that place and your perspective is a bit broadened, man. And that's, that's the curiosity that I think I do in a daily basis that when I don't do it, I get head down, you know, eyes closed, eyes down or whatever. And I, and I'm not able to see or cap, capture what it is that's coming toward me. Uh, in reference to the, you know, the megaphone uh, one other thing, uh, Hippocrates says this, he says that you can't heal somebody that's not willing to let go of what's making him sick. I think my nature, I think you're right. I would have ended up here regardless. That's kind of the lesson of the spiral. It's like the opportunities of things that that are coming back in your life 
to get right. I think you do, or the, you don't. And the harshness of those decisions get a little bit more intense or it gets, it elevates you to this new plane of awareness, understanding of consciousness to then integrate in an interdisciplinary way, all of what was with where you feel called because inspiration is cool, but it's about reflecting to make aspirations in your life. That's the cool being becoming piece for sure. And so the megaphone, you know, direct to what I've founded and where I find so much joy, it would be the adaptive training foundation, follow adaptive training foundation on Instagram or Facebook, uh, go to team ATF T E A M atf.org team atf you check out our site we show the rosters of the athletes that are training you know and it could be a t-shirt buy a 25 dollars t-shirt that goes directly to athlete funds you could do an empowerment pledge 22 dollars a month which helps us kick veteran suicide numbers in the teeth right uh it could be sponsoring an athlete to go through our program nationally we fly them in we house them we give them all their food all that i mean it's never about equal contribution it's about equal sacrifice and whatever that is on your heart um, it's an invitation into the story and it's up to you to, to take that jump. Uh, if people are passionate about clean water, man, go to waterboys.org. That's, that's Chris Long's organization. That's the one we're climbing Kilimanjaro with. And I, and I think it just goes back to sort of the, you can serve without compassion, but you can't offer compassion without service. Find something. If basket weaving got you out of the hood, go basket weave somebody else out of the hood. If, if you know, if you're fired up about paint by numbers, then figure out a way to take that to kids or do that in a way that you're passionate about. Because the gym and working out, that, that has always been my safe haven. Now I just found a way to passionately use it to serve somebody else. That's the best way I can use the megaphone today. So awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then Instagram intentional underscore performers. Uh, this has been fun. I use the word fun because I, I really, I really enjoyed it. And even though there's some darkness in there, sure, uh, maybe, you know, it's fun for me. Like I, I, you said something earlier about Will Smith just having fun. Like, um, you know, fun. You, you talked about being on like a raft in, I forget exactly <laughs> where you were. Like fun doesn't have to be necessarily pleasure. Like fun is is not the same thing as pleasure so this has been enlightening fun i've learned a ton from you i can't wait to listen and, and take some notes uh and as i said earlier i'm looking forward to continuing this conversation and many more intentional conversations with you in the yeah, future man. likewise brian appreciate you man we'll talk again soon thank you for listening to intentional performers with brian levinson here is this week's episode gem it was hell-bent full throttle like i got this new thing my passion and i was i was a workaholic and I was trying to manage my for-profit business at the same time I was starting this nonprofit, and there was some stress. But I remember coming home one night late, 2 a.m. or so, and my wife was like one light on over the kitchen table, interrogation room style. I'm like, oh, oh God. And I, I sat down and she looked at me and she said, do I have to be missing an arm or a leg for you to put the same type of focus and attention on me and the girls? Dude, but she wasn't doing it to take a jab. She was just stating the truth. She knew I was better than that. And I said to her, I said, look, I'm human. I'm sorry, but that's not an excuse. I'll be better every day that passes. <laughs>